roofs sloped from two stories at the back to one at the front, a configuration that allowed them to avoid attacks on two-story structures imposed by the king. The settlement was begun in a communal spirit, but a pecking order was soon established. Lion Gardner came to America in the service of the king, who hoped to prevent the Dutch from claiming the territory, but he was a businessman, the seventeenth century's equivalent of a real estate speculator. Walt Whitman admired him, or the idea of him. Tradition relates that Wyandance, the great chief of eastern Long Island, loved and obeyed Mr. Gardner in a remarkable manner, he wrote. Having once sailed past it, Whitman conjured Gardner's island as a kind of colonial Santa's workshop. Imagine the Arcadian simplicity and plenty of the situation, and of those times. Doubtless among his workpeople, Mr. Gardner had Indians, both men and women. Imagine the picturesqueness of the groups, at night in the large hall or the kitchen, the mighty fire, the supper, the dignity and yet good humor of the heads of family, and the stalwart health of the brown-faced crowd around them. Imagine their simple pleasures, their interests, their occupations. How different from ours. Well, yes and no. Wealth came to the settlers in a way that must have seemed like a biblical plague. One day, someone noticed that the fifty-foot-long, seventy-five-ton, glistening, reeking black carcass of a whale had washed up on the shore from the ocean. The creature may have been sick, it may have been disoriented or driven inland by an offshore storm. Such landings were common throughout the 1720s. The story of whaling on the East End is in outline the same as that found everywhere they have been hunted. At first, whales were abundant, washing up on shore or spotted close to land. A handful of men in a small boat set out in pursuit, and when the carcass was dragged ashore, it was divided among the townspeople. As the creatures decreased in number, it became necessary to sail farther from land to capture them. Eventually, they were sought on voyages of months or even years. Finally, the expense of the ventures exceeded the revenue they yielded, and the industry collapsed. The Indians had been observed pursuing and killing whales as early as 1620. They cut up and cooked the blubber, using the rendered oil to preserve animal hides. The settlers realized that whales were valuable in manifold ways. Their oil was the most efficient fuel for illumination available, and everything from buggy whips and candles to corsets and collar stays could be fashioned from their bones and baleen. The economies of Southampton and Easthampton thereby flourished in a way no one had anticipated. The disposal of whales was at first a communal effort. Because time was of the essence, whales rot quickly, everyone was expected to lend a hand in the unpleasant business of hacking up the smelly carcasses and cooking down the blubber. Children were even let out of school. Anyone who did not participate could be fined. The Eastenders made the process as efficient as they could. Whaleboats patrolled the coast for weeks at a time. On shore, A paid whale-watcher alerted the town when he spotted a glossy black back breaking the ocean's skin. A crew of six, four rowers, a tiller, and a harpooner, piled into a twenty-foot cedar whaleboat, patterned after the Indian's dugout canoe. They chased down the creature, hoping to puncture its heart or lung. If the wound was made accurately, the whale could be towed to shore. If not, the whale dragged the men behind it for hours until it tired, all the while snapping the boat in its wake like the tail of a kite. By the mid-1660s, whaling had evolved into the private enterprise of a few fortunate families. It took capital to purchase a whaleboat, harpoons, the expensive iron kettle used to boil blubber, and special barrels for whale oil, 
and it was an investment most families could not afford to make. The Montaukett Indians, whose bartering arrangements with the settlers left them permanently in debt, entered into contracts in which they agreed to work for the whaling companies to settle those debts. In this way they were bound to the English from year to year with little hope of paying all that they owed. The early whaling companies paid their employees with small amounts of cash and with whale bounty. The Indians were given fins, and the English received three-foot hunks of meat. The industry thus hastened the stratification of white society on the East End, and in a community that numbered about five hundred, resentments flourished and were often played out in court, for the settlers and their early descendants were a litigious lot. Complaints were routinely filed over trivial matters, the most popular being slander and defamation of character. By 1700, Amagansett had become the main source for whale oil and whalebone on the eastern seaboard. A thriving market economy was now in place on the East End. Social classes had been established. It was almost impossible to buy land unless you were descended from one of the settling families or extremely wealthy. And then the whales simply stopped coming. It would be years before the hunt for them resumed, this time in three-masted ships out of Sag Harbor. In the meantime, the East End lost its position on the front line of the economy, a victim of what later centuries would call overfishing. There was little reason for East Enders to maintain more than a tenuous connection with the rest of the world, and they reverted to obscurity. The families who had managed to get in on the whaling boom retained an aura of importance— they owned the most valuable land in the hearts of the villages and along the ocean. Those who hadn't claimed a stake constituted the servant class and lived in outlying areas. The Long Island Railroad tracks would come to mark the dividing line between the classes, then the Montauk Highway, when it became the more popular travel route. South of the highway still means class on the East End. As late as 1878, a visitor would describe East Hampton thus. It is five miles from Sag Harbor, fifteen from Greenport, and about a hundred miles from New York. But from the way they are behind the times, should think they were about five thousand. Sag Harbor, however, had vitality. It was one of the most important whaling ports on the East Coast from the time of the Revolutionary War until 1857, when a financial crash killed off the industry for the second time. In any case, the discovery of petroleum a few years earlier meant that whale oil and spermaceti would soon be replaced by kerosene and paraffin. The most notable cultural presence on the East End until the end of the 19th century was that of a woodworking family, the Dominies. They were East Hampton farmers who in the off-seasons made about 1,000 pieces of furniture over 65 years, handing down the craft through several generations. Nathaniel Dominey IV and his son and grandson ignored changing fashions and technological advances, but each added a specialty to the family's arsenal, and they had a wide range of clients among the wealthier citizens of the East End. By the mid-19th century, the demand for their custom-made chairs, tables, desks, and bureaus had fallen as large companies began providing cheap, well-made furniture. But the Dominies had something else to offer, though it didn't fatten their purses— when hordes of painters descended upon East Hampton in the 1880s, the Dominey farmhouse, sagging with age, and its adjoining workshop became a popular subject. Nathaniel Dominey VII sometimes stepped outside to watch the artists work at their easels. You fellows get a thousand dollars in York for a picture of my back door, he'd say, and I get nothing. 
Lange Island, as the Dutch labeled it on maps, is sediment left by a glacier that plowed south as it melted for thousands of years, part of its detritus the South Fork, a hilly scrubby ridge that slopes off to bays on the north, the ocean on the south. Like bubbles in pancake batter, pockets formed in the glacial sediment, kettle holes that held meltwater in the form of bays, ponds, harbors, and creeks. Because the Dutch wanted eastern Long Island, Lion Gardner was sent there in the early 1630s to keep them from having it. He did so by building and commanding a fort at the mouth of the Connecticut River, north of Long Island. The fort also was meant to subdue the Pequot Indians, who had their own plans for the East End. In 1637, the nation was all but wiped out when Gardner's men set fire to the Indian fort. Those who fled the inferno were shot or hacked up with swords. The Montaukett Indians, who had been paying protection money to the Pequots, began paying off the English instead. In a deal struck with Gardner by Wyandance, the Montaukett chief, the English were granted exclusive trading rights with the tribe. With a continuous source of wampum, Gardner could trade shells for whatever his heart desired, including beaver skins, which London merchants coveted. In this manner he acquired Gardner's Island, which he named the Isle of Wight on taking ownership of it in 1639. About a decade later, the English governors of the Connecticut and New Haven colonies bought what is now East Hampton Town for a pile of looking-glasses, hatchets and knives, twenty coats and a hundred muxes, the small metal drills used to string wampum on leather strips. Two years later, they resold East Hampton to Gardner for $30,000. At about the same time, the English acquired Southampton from the Shinnecocks in return for protecting them from the Narragansetts and promptly segregated the Indians in Shinnecock Hills, where the golf club bearing their name and designed by Stanford White would be erected 250 years later. The Indians who sold the East End to the British thought they retained the right to hunt and fish where they liked.